So today's reading is taken, as was said, from Titus chapter 3, which is on page 1199. That's page 1199. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, come to uh, chapter 3, as you just heard read, of the book of Titus. And uh, uh, this is the final talk in this series. Um, so let's pray together before we look at it. Dear Lord, um, you're the one who inspired this letter. And we pray that as we look at it now, that you will inspire us to learn more about you and thus serve you better. Amen. Um, yeah, just, so just to repeat, recap a little bit about the book of Titus. It's, it's a letter from Paul to Titus uh, because he's left uh, Titus to look after the church in Crete. Uh, and so in the letter he's setting out, advising him uh, what, how he should appoint leaders, elders as they're called, sort out the false teachers that have been plaguing that church and uh, to give him instructions on what he should be teaching 
the, the people, uh, the church there, on how they should live. And that's uh, what we're looking at today, um, that bit about how we should live. Now, if you looked at the, uh, the last line of chapter 2, and chapter 2 was um, uh, looking at how people should live and giving instructions, then uh, you, you may think that uh, he'd finished teaching that because he says, this then are the things, these then are the things you should teach. So, yeah, so you might think he'd finished. Uh, like somebody who says, um, that is all I'm going to have to say about that, and then proceeds to say a lot more. Um, but in fact, uh, this last chapter, as is often the case, is sort of pulling things together. Uh, but not to be confused with being a summary of what's gone before. Because whereas last week Alex was looking at uh, what uh, should be taught to various groups within the church, like older men, older women, and so on, this chapter is looking at what should be taught to all people within the church. This is what they should be doing if they call themselves Christians. And therefore, what we should also be doing, what we're called to. In addition, whereas last week it was, uh, in part at least, about relationships between people in the church, uh, this chapter covers how the church should behave to all people, whoever they may be, whether they're Christians or not. So notice it says in verse 2, Slander no one. Show humility to all men. That's all people. So then my first point we're looking at here is Christian behavior outside of church life. There are three points altogether. This is the first. So then look what he says about rulers and authorities in verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Well, this might sound the sort of thing that the government tells you you ought to be doing, or some policeman or something. Although, of course, authority could mean your boss at work, the company you work for, your teacher, the sports coach, and so on. But let's ask ourselves, is being subject to or obedient to authority a popular view today? I think not. It's quite a marked disrespect, I would say, often for authority. We prefer the rebel, don't we? Often portray the rebel as the hero, the one who challenges authority, not who's obedient and submits to it. That's the person that's often admired. So you might feel this instruction clashes with the very culture in which we live now. And it's going to be difficult to follow it or even to justify why we're doing that. Well, it seems from the writings about the Cretans, the people in Crete, back in the day, that those people were constantly getting themselves involved in insurrections, murders and uprisings. In chapter 1, Paul says there are many rebellious people there. So you can imagine that, so why we might imagine, sorry, that it's our culture that this is counter to. Actually, it was counter to their culture as well. So nevertheless, Paul is insisting that this is what Christians should do. This is how they should behave. No matter what anyone else is getting up to or believe is better. Still, at the risk of letting ourselves off the hook a bit here, 
Are we then to be subject to and obey anything that the rulers tell us? Well, Paul is not advocating unconditional allegiance. In that day, that might mean you would worship the emperor, for example. It's true that in Romans 13, Paul says a bit more about obeying authorities, and he makes the point, for there is no authority except that which God has established. But we also need to consider what Peter said in Acts 5, when he was hauled before the Sanhedrin, who were the authority, you could say. And they told him he couldn't speak about Jesus. He must stop. And he said, we must obey God rather than men. As Christians, we confess that Jesus is Lord. So our first loyalty is to God. So if our duty to authority clashes with what our allegiance to God is, then God must take precedence. Similar to the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the Second World War clearly didn't obey what the Nazis told him he should. He was a Christian pastor. It does not mean obey an authority who is telling you to do something which is evil. However, be ready to do what is good, it says, verse 1. And maybe that's the key phrase. But maybe we should heed the warning, because the Pharisees in Jesus' day were very inclined to define doing what is good in a way that best suited their purposes, their authorities. Then uh, he goes on in verse 2 to talk about uh, our behavior to everyone in general. To to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all men. Here again, that I don't think is very popular, is it? I recently heard someone say, who doesn't love a bit of gossip? Unfortunately, that's probably a bit true, isn't it? They would say, perhaps, there's no harm in it. And to be peaceable and considerate, well, that's just boring. And as for showing true humility to everyone, well, does society teach that? They teach us anything but. We are told to promote ourselves, to talk ourselves up. You don't get anywhere by being humble. You look in the mirror and tell yourself that how brilliant you are, we're told. Trouble with my mirror, it seems to talk back. (laughs) But experience challenges this view, I think. Because if you were in a position where you had to work with other people, and many of you perhaps do, get alongside them. Maybe you're in a team, not to mention having any sort of role which is could be called an authority. Well, this is exactly the sort of person that you'd want your colleague to be, your teammate, your staff. You'd want them to be peaceable, considerate, humble. We have in this series talked about how the gospel message is uh, counter-cultural. What it means and what I mean by that is that it goes against society generally and what it thinks. And it does. It does that just at about every level. For God's wisdom, of course, is not our wisdom. 
But it's always been the case that it goes against the culture. But in every culture, it goes against the flow. We take the narrow door. We go the difficult way. It's not just then, perhaps, going against culture. It's going against our own inclination. It's significant, I think, that right in the beginning there, Paul says, remind the people. We need reminding because it's so easy to forget that we are meant to be different from the world around us. And people are meant to notice that we are. So then, what we should, how we should behave. Now, second, my second point is why should Christians behave like this? Verses three to eight. Well, because to be humble, gentle, and gracious is to be like Jesus. But in these verses, three to eight, Paul tells us in a bit more detail why we should behave like this. In so doing, Paul gives us what John Stock calls a condensed but comprehensive account of salvation. Paul is not saying that he expects people who are not Christians who don't follow the faith to behave like this. Although, of course, I'm sure you've met people who do try and behave like this. They've seen the sense of it somehow without grasping the faith that leads to it. So Paul sets out that Christian, Christianity is a religion of salvation. Chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men in Christ. It is grounded in history. But more than that, it is for us now become a personal experience. If we are Christians, then he has saved us, you and me. Twice in verse 5 he says, he saved us. We are a people who have been saved. So Paul sets out now six ingredients to salvation under this second heading. So I'm going to talk about six things. Sorry I hadn't got uh, space to get them all on there. Um, Well I might have, but you wouldn't have had a space to write anything. so. So these are the six things. In today's society, to be saved is often trivialized, even mocked, isn't it? Are you saved? I get it because people don't grasp how serious our position is. So Paul starts by reminding us what we all were at one time, or would be still. So I'm going to read verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Maybe it might leap me, when you read that, you think, well, was I that bad? (laughs) Well then, by that, we don't understand how serious it is, if we think like that. How serious rejecting God is. came across this uh, wonderful quote by Tim Keller. The gospel is that we are sinful and flawed, more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Paul says, we've been foolish and disobedient. 
Not just foolish like unwise, we've actually opposed him. We've been deceived and enslaved. Evil, the evil one had us deceived and slaves to passions that would never satisfy us, although always promising to. We were dupes and his slaves. We lived in malice and envy, resenting others, coveting what they had and secretly wishing evil upon them. We were being hated and hating. The hostility that we received, then we reciprocated. We hated right back. What a vivid contrast then between what, we, what he's saying, how we should behave and what we once were. Quite simply, he saved us. That is true, that we're not the finished article, but our eyes have been opened and he has and is transforming us. So that's the need. Secondly, the source of salvation. If we were deceived and enslaved, then it's obvious that you can't actually save yourself. The strange thing is that that is the major delusion today, that we can save ourselves. Shirley MacLaine, the actress, writes, All the answers are within yourself. The only source is ourselves. Paul teaches something different. Um, Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not, Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. The God of love appeared. <clears throat> That's by that he means that through the life, uh, birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus he appeared. But John says God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And so Paul picks out kindness, which is kindness to the ungrateful and wicked, mercy to the helpless, grace to the guilty and undeserving. All of that originated in God, in the heart of God. He took the initiative. He intervened. He came after us to rescue us. That is the source of our salvation. The third thing is the ground of salvation. Verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now throughout the New Testament there is this constant repetition as if to hammer home this point to us it is not because of anything that we have done or indeed can do it is because of his mercy that led him to send his son for us to save us through him as the hymn says tis mercy all immense and free So that's number three, that's uh, the ground of salvation. Now we look, number four, at the means of salvation, verses five and six. So he saved us, not because of righteousness he had done, but because of mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. God has saved us through rebirth and renewal. 
It's not that he repaired us or patched us up. We are a new creation. We, uh, when we were delivering the parish notices around, um, we were chatting to somebody in their garden and uh, suddenly he said to us, are you one of those born-again Christians? We sort of paused for a minute trying to imagine what he thought a born-again Christian was. We said yes, because if someone is a Christian, then they are born again. That's what Paul is saying. It's not a category of Christian. It is a description of what a Christian is. Paul is obviously indicating baptism when he is saying washing of rebirth. But this then is also renewal by the Holy Spirit. In baptism we have an outward dramatization of rebirth but it is inwardly affected by the Holy Spirit and at the same time we are justified by grace through Christ that is the means then fifthly what is the goal of salvation verse 7 here so that having been justified by grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That we might have eternal life, the hope of it. We have not yet reached heaven, but in the fullness of time, we will know. We will receive that inheritance. Paul says, verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying, because it is resting on God's promise. Chapter 1, verse 2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. That is the goal of salvation, that we should not perish, but have eternal life. So lastly, number six, the evidence of salvation. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. A recurring theme in this letter, you may have noticed, is doing what is good. It's repeated across the letter seven times. The evidence for salvation is how we behave, how we live. Ephesians 2 Uh, verse 10 for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do if we then profess that we have been saved then we are called to show evidence of it it is true that salvation does not depend upon that but this letter and the Bible generally makes clear that we should show evidence of our salvation for the sake of those who have not yet believed. I have lost count of the number of times that people um, have testified that they were first drawn to know or to pursue knowing Jesus because they noticed something different about those who followed him. That is very encouraging, but it's also very challenging, isn't it? So there we have it, six ingredients to salvation. That is why we should behave this way. So my third and final point 
is doing what is good and avoiding controversies. So as I finish, I want to point out to you something else which is counter to the way that we would normally think. Because humanly speaking, if you're going to say to somebody, this is the reason why you should do that, then you would say, um, you do that in order that you get that. You study hard for your exams so that you pass and you get a good job, hopefully. You do a good job at this and then you will get the bonus. It seems like the whole world works on this incentive system. You do that and you get this. And we find ways to persuade people to do what is right, either by reward or punishment. Someone recently said of the things that we do here, I think it was like lunch club or something, I do not like all these Christians doing good to get into heaven. Well, as it turns out, it seems God doesn't like that either. Because that is not how God's salvation works. We are called to do what is good because we already have the reward, eternal life. A reward greater than we could dare hope. It is his promise and he does not lie. But it seems sort of backwards. I mean, would you give the full payment to your builder and then ask him if he wouldn't mind building your house? But then I think, let's think of this way. If someone loves, uh, sorry, someone you love, takes on doing something for you, say, takes some burden off of you, sticks up for you at the cost of themselves, offers to do this job that would have been a burden to you, but they do it not for any reward, but simply because they are grateful to you for the love you have already shown them. Now that is something else, isn't it? That is God's way. We are called to live and behave like this out of love for the one who first loved us. Now I sort of run out of time to discuss what my heading said there about foolish controversies. But you have got a question on that sheet that you can discuss. And having considered the amazing thing which salvation is, how foolish it would be to get distracted with useless quarrels and arguments over minor things. But that seems often what the church does. Unless, of course... The controversy itself did threaten the very message of salvation. Let me pray for us. As I finish, I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Where Paul is saying that we should live self-controlled and godly lives. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Dear Lord, we thank you for this letter to Titus and through him to us, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enable us to respond to the love, mercy and grace that you have shown us by devoting ourselves to doing what is good. 
the good works that you have prepared for us to do. Amen.